2: School of Humans.
3: Please note that this podcast episode discusses historical events that include physical abuse against children. Please take care as you listen. For most, if not all, of Mount Meg's existence, running away was a tradition born of necessity. We mentioned in the first episode that in 1922, there had been a fire that destroyed many of the early records about Mount Meg's. So it's hard to know just how many kids ran away in the school's infancy. But as far back as the 1920s and 30s, children ran away regularly, and sometimes successfully. In 1929, 16 of the 350 students successfully escaped Mount Megs. By the next decade, that number had basically doubled. In the 1950s and 60s, the Montgomery Advertiser, the local paper, regularly published stories, alerting the community to runaways from Mount Megs. In fact, these notices made up a significant chunk of the local paper's mentions of Mount Megs at all. Press about Mount Meggs was mostly letting people know when the school had ears of corn for sale, or notices about a lost mule, or runaways. Six-armed Negroes escaped Mount Megs Industrial School read the headline of one such article, Another told of a 14-year-old Mount Megs runaway believed to be behind the theft of several items—cigars, cookies, and other knickknacks from a candy store. Despite the very real and very corporal consequences, if caught, kids ran away from the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children all the time in the years after the state took over. In fact, many of them ran away over and over and over again, kept escaping, even if they didn't get too far. In one story, the Alabama Journal mentioned two boys, Willie, who had allegedly tried to escape Mount Megs five times, and Leonard, who had tried to run away ten times. Every former resident we talked to for this podcast has a story about running away from Mount Megs. And the one thing all of these stories have in common is this, the belief that life as a teenage fugitive was better than life as a quote-unquote student at Mount Megs even knowing what would happen if they were caught. I'm Josie Duffy Rice, and this is Unreformed, the story of the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children. Episode 4, The Runaways. By all accounts, the punishment for running away could be even more brutal than the day-to-day violence. Bloodhounds would chase after you, and if they caught you, they'd bite and wouldn't let go. Charge boys were once exemplary students, trusted with more responsibility by the superintendent. But by the 1960s, the job had been corrupted. They'd become henchmen for the administrators, granted permission to terrorize other students, and they'd also join the hunt for runaways. Johnny Bodley was both prey and witness to such hunts.
4: This is the worst part about it. They would make a charge boy beat you. They'd almost damn near killed you, and they'd bring you back just like that for everybody to see. And they put you on display.
3: Which is what happened to Jenny Knox. Jenny was serving her second sentence at Mount Megs. After she got out the first time, she was put in the care of her sister. But they had a contentious relationship. And so the sister called up the district attorney and asked them to take Jenny back.
5: She called him and told him that she couldn't do anything with me but to come take me back down to Mount Megs. And I was looking for that black car, man. I recognized that black car. And I recognized them two faces sitting up front. And they came to get me off of her porch.
3: When the juvenile probation officers arrived, Jenny was able to evade them in a cat-and-mouse chase, and she outsmarted them by diving into some tall grass behind a nearby house. She knew they wouldn't look there. And that's where I stayed. I didn't know of no snakes or nothing. I wasn't scared. Jenny stayed in that tall grass for hours.
5: It started getting dark. And then I came out.
3: And it's okay, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty. But Jenny's freedom was short lived. Eventually, they caught me. The second time, when Jenny was in the back of the probation officer's black car, she knew what type of hell was awaiting her at Mount Meg's. This time, she wasn't the naive 13 year old, confused why she was being sent away, given that, as she saw it, she had done nothing wrong. Jenny was now 15 years old, and she was returning to the devil she knew. So they considered you as being a two-timer, so I was a (laughs) two-timer. And nothing had gotten no better. Jenny had no intention of staying at Mount Megs.
5: I tried to run away from out there. And in my trying to run away, me and another lady uh, got into some serious trouble, and they ended up putting us in a straitjacket, and we had to stand up in the uh, dining room while everybody else was sitting down eating and we couldn't eat anything because we were in white
3: for running away. If they were caught running away or labeled troublemakers, kids had to wear white clothing. It was a mark of shame so that these kids could be easily identified among the masses of kids in Army fatigues.
5: They put you in white and a lot of times just by you being in white you were locked away from The other boys.
4: They would give you a white, a big white jumpsuit. They never washed it. So the, the white suit became almost black before you got out of
5: white. White means no privileges.
3: Mary's responsibilities as head dormitory girl led to more scrutiny and punishment from Fanny, and she had already sustained a terrible injury from one of Fanny's beatings.
5: She had hit me in the head with a bottle, and my head was swollen.
3: Mary had to go to the hospital, and Fanny...
5: She would make me stay under the stairs so people couldn't see me. I had to stay under the stairs in the closet during the day, so I wouldn't be seen. I ran, I ran and ran and ran and ran and
3: ran. When Lonnie ran away, he'd been at Mount Meg's about a year. It was 1962 and he was 12 years old. He was out in the fields with a group of other boys pulling up corn stalks, and he needed to go to the bathroom. Now, you were lucky if Mr. Glover let you use the bathroom. Sometimes, even if he did, he'd make a charge boy supervise, and that could lead to physical and sexual abuse. If you were given the permission to go, you were supposed to make it quick, run to the woods, do your business, and come right back. But Lonnie lucked out that day. Mr. Glover allowed him to take a bathroom break in the woods alone. And while he was gone, the group moved on to another spot, leaving him behind.
5: I had no intention of running away. But the longer I stooped down, they kept moving up the field. So I was like a rabbit. I just ducked there and stayed there. And they kept moving up the field. So rapidly, they went over this bluff. You could hardly see their head. And that's when I started backing up. And I backed up and I kept backing up, raising my body up, straightening up. I didn't see nobody. Pulling my clothes up, fastening them up on me tight. And I turned around and I started running.
3: Behind Lonnie was a barbed wire fence that separated a cornfield from the pecan orchards. He jumped the fence and dashed across the orchards, which turned out to be kind of dangerous terrain.
5: Through the briars and the sticker bushes and all the other things that were in the perimeter around the Alabama Industrial School, they had man-made ponds. If you wasn't careful, you'll fall off into one of them, and you'll drown, and nobody never know you was in them.
3: Still, Lonnie ran.
5: I ran, 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 ran. Ran, nobody saw me. Nobody missed me. I just ran.
3: Lonnie ran with no idea where he was or where he was headed.
5: I think it must have been around 10, 11 hours tired. And I ran, and I didn't know where I was because of the dog. And I fell into this hole, and that's where I went to sleep. I slipped down in there. Didn't know there was no snakes or nothing was in it.
3: Lonnie's luck held. No snakes bothered him while he slept, and he woke up early the next morning at sunrise to the sound of roosters and birds chirping. He took a look around.
5: I climbed up out of the grave by the roots of the tree, and then that's when I looked around and I saw all those real old tombstones.
3: He realized his sleeping spot was right next to a cemetery. He kept running and soon found the highway, He ran alongside it to avoid detection. His oversized hand-me-down military fatigues would have been a red flag to any passerby that he was a Mount Meg's escapee. So he ran in the ditches like all those times in Birmingham. Eventually, Lonnie came to what he called a tractor place. He's referring to a farmall showroom where they sold tractors. As he was scoping out the place, he looked into a window and spied a can of sardines.
5: So I took my elbow because I had on long sleeves. And I took my elbow and knocked out one of the windows and went into the farm tractor play and opened the refrigerator there with some cheese, cracker, a cold drink. And uh, I sat down and I ate my belly full because I was tired. I fell asleep.
3: Lonnie was exhausted. He didn't know it at the time, but he traveled more than 25 miles on foot in less than 24 hours, almost all the way to Tuskegee. But he didn't get to sleep for long.
5: The next thing I know, the man that owned the track to play, he was a white man, big white man, grabbed man in my
3: The man had Lonnie in a bind, yelling at him.
5: He got you tightly gripped, and then he took his fist, and knocked me out. I mean, literally, knocked me unconscious.
3: Lonnie was knocked out on the floor of the tractor place. When he came to, his bleary eyes made out the image of someone who wasn't there before. Someone he didn't want to see.
5: Next thing I know, somebody slapping me into my face, hollering, darling, why? Why did you run away? Why did you run away?
3: It was Superintendent E.B. Holloway.
5: He took his fist, And showing the white man, he could knock me out. And he took and knocked me out again.
3: Two grown men punching a child unconscious. The next time Lonnie woke, he was back at Mount Meg's on the floor of the cottage for solitary confinement. He was held there for a day, which he spent nursing his head. Part of the misery of being in that cottage was the apprehension just waiting for the brutal punishment that was to come. In the morning...
5: The next thing I knew were the charge boys coming to the cell and taking me out of the cell, holding me by both arms, taking me down to this big cedar tree I'll never forget.
3: Below the cedar tree was a bench, also made of cedar.
5: Your arm was wrapped around the tree and tied around it like you're hugging the tree. And your back leg was tied to the bench.
3: And this was going to be a public spectacle.
5: All the girls from the girls' home is brought down. The boys from the boys' home, all of them... They're brought down here by everybody. Mr. Holloway shout out, darling, why you wanna run away? And then he looked around. He said, who you wanna whoop you? You want Mr. Ready to make you drunk or Mr. Glover to make you sick? So I had ran away from Mr. Glover So I chose Mr. Glover to whoop me.
3: Mr. Holloway gave orders for the beating to start.
5: The amount of licks that he told Mr. Glover to hit me, he said, shoot him 150. That means hit you 150 times.
3: He was hitting Lonnie with a fan belt on his bare legs.
5: So he hit you right in the back of your head and knocked you out cold. So that's the third time I don't be known, got knocked out.
3: The beating was so violent that Mr. Glover...
5: He didn't know whether he had killed me or not.
3: When Lonnie came to next, blood was dripping down his legs, running down into his socks. They dressed him in white. A deep X was shaved into his hair, another mark of a runaway. They took away his shoes, and then he was thrown onto the rock pile.
0: Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health.
3: The rock pile was the most infamous torture site on the Mount Meg's campus.
5: It's a big old circle of nothing but a pile of stone. And they were whitewashed. All of them was whitewashed. The trees all around them, they was rocks that had been dug when you cleared a field. And they brought brought to a central location, piled up, and whitewashed. Beautifully white. it's off I mean it's like
4: in this big this big yard and all of this dirt and all these big these big square rocks painted
5: white. I'm saying you had to be done did something real real bad for you to go on the rock pile. You on the rock pile, you're an example.
3: Once condemned to the rock pile, you weren't allowed to leave. The only places you could go were to the kitchen to sleep and to the chapel on Sundays, if you could muster the strength. Otherwise, you were stuck there. You couldn't even leave to use the bathroom.
5: You on the rock pile day and night. Rain, sleet, hail or snow.
4: If you went out of the circuit, they would beat you. You know, the rock pile was brutal.
3: On the rock pile, the boys in white were ostracized from everyone else. And there was even more violence between them, because there was nothing else to do except sit there or move some rocks around. It was just them, and the elements, and the rocks.
4: You know, I was sitting in the rock pile once, and a rock came in and hit me in the face. You know, almost knocked my eye out. And for about 2, 15 years after that, out when, when I got out of Mount Mead, I used to walk around like this
3: here. Johnny's holding his hands up in front of his eyes.
4: Like expecting a rock to come from anywhere.
3: Lonnie figured he might very well end up dying on the rock pile, and he thought no one would notice or care.
5: I remember every time that I would touch the back of my thighs and my leg, or when they pulled the different clothes off of me, they just ripped it off of me. So that exposed the, the soul that was on me, and they just started bleeding all over again. But they Beated me to the point that I couldn't even walk. I couldn't do nothing but crawl.
3: Even now, he remembers his blood dripping onto the white rocks. The days turned to weeks, and the weeks turned to months. According to Lonnie, 18 months later, he was still on the rock pile.
5: I asked Mr. Holloway every day for a year and a half. When are you going to let me off the rock pile.
3: Lonnie created a sculpture called Blood on the Rock Pile in 2003. And when I met him earlier this year, I asked him about it.
5: So sure I took clay and red paint and mixed it up like my blood in the clay. I whitewashed the rocks. And I took wire. I wanted to bind that situation up so tight. I wanted to rid myself of that experience, but I can't. I get whoopings in my sleep about it.
3: The rock pile still haunts Lonnie to this day.
5: I've often caught myself in that state of being in my dreams of asking, when are you going to let me off the rock pile?
3: As Lonnie tells it, Holloway finally let him off the rock pile, months later.
5: And I asked him, and the next thing I know, he was taking me down. And one day, it was my time to come off the rock pile.
3: Lonnie didn't try to run away again. Often, it wasn't only the kids who wanted to get away from Mount Meg's. Their parents wanted them home too. We have a document from school administrators that was given to parents in what we think was the late 1960s or so. And it says The purpose of this institution is to train and reclaim delinquent girls and boys of Alabama by giving them spiritual, academic, and vocational experiences, and by teaching them to live wholesome lives in their communities. And then, in all caps, The document says, it is not a prison. But many parents knew otherwise. We found letters in the state archives written to the governor from parents begging for their children's release. None of them had any idea when their children were coming home. And though they didn't know much about what was happening to their kids at Mount Meg's, they knew enough to be scared. Here's one from 1968 to Governor Lurleen Wallace. George Wallace's wife. She became governor of Alabama in 1967, right after her husband's first term. The mother writing to her is talking about her son, Gregory. He has been on Mount Megs for 18 months, she says. Gregory is my baby son. I would like for him to come home. I believe he has learned a lesson. He was born with a deformity, right side. He is not a bad boy. It was mostly the neighborhood that I was living in at the time. If there is any way possible you can help me get my son home, I will thank you from the bottom of my heart. You are a mother, and I know you know how a mother feels about her child. I want my son home, please. Please. Once a month, parents could come visit Mount Megs. But according to the letters, the visits were closely supervised, making it difficult, if not impossible, for children to tell their parents what was really going on. One letter says, When the parents go to visit them, they can't sit down and talk with them without someone sitting in their presence. They're afraid to talk. In the 1940s, one mother, Corinne Hill, filed a habeas petition in court, saying her child was being unlawfully detained. And the court agreed ruling that her son was entitled to be seen by a judge. But that didn't change the process at Mount Megs. Kids were still detained indefinitely, often without so much as a hearing. And the reason that these parents couldn't get any attention, any response, any recourse, was obvious. It was because they were Black. Here's an excerpt from one letter that we found. I honestly feel that my son's present situation is the result of prejudice on the judge's part and the fact that he was a victim of circumstances. I've exhausted all means of trying to help him there, but it seems that there's a minority here that must accept whatever decisions are made, whether they represent justice or not. When I was researching Mount Meg's, this was one of the hardest parts for me. As the black parent of young kids. This idea that your children can be taken by the state, and there's nothing you can do but beg, it's hard to grapple with. In one 1968 letter, a desperate mother tells the governor that she knows the kids are being mistreated. They beat them with a stick, she says. They don't have nice clothing to wear. And she talks about how they're starving. They have cornbread and syrup and peanut butter for breakfast. Mr. E.B. Holloway is stealing their food. She tells the governor that the men who watch over the boys are beating all sides of their heads. She asks, Will you please do something about it? Here's another letter from a parent from 1959 written to the governor. The children are having a hard time, it says. These children work in the fields. He tells the governor he doesn't believe he knows how bad it is, or else he would do something about it. The letter continues, I don't believe the men and women in prison have such a hard time. Please, please look into this matter. Mostly, these parents were either ignored or given the runaround. The governor's office would often refer them back to Mount Megs. We don't have many records of Mount Megs' response to stuff like this but we have one record where E.B. Holloway himself wrote back. We don't have the original letter from the parent, only Holloway's letter in response. In it, he wrote, We wish to assure you that William is not receiving any inhumane treatment nor injustice, but he is fortunate to be receiving a type of training that he did not receive at home. Holloway concluded by saying, you may be assured that as soon as the staff feels that William has received the maximum benefit, we shall be happy to recommend him for release. But despite Holloway's insistence that Mount Megs was doing a better job at raising the kids than their parents, the constant stream of runaways indicated otherwise. I was tired and scared and just
5: didn't want to take it anymore.
3: It's November 1968. And Mary Stevens has been at Mount Megs for about a year. She was constantly wearing white. Fanny Matthews had already given her that brutal beating that sent her to the hospital. And she had already attempted to run away once. But then a new girl arrived at Mount Megs.
5: And there was a girl that came to stay at Mount Megs that really wasn't afraid of them. Because she was there for either attempting to kill somebody or killing someone.
3: Possible murder or not, Mary and the new girl became friends. Mary admired her bravery. She remembers the new girl wasn't afraid. She'd take a beating from Fanny and look her dead in the eyes while it was happening. It was the new girl who had the idea. One day, Mary and four other girls were working together in the fields around Mount Megs. And the new girl said they should run. And this escape would change everything. Unreformed, the story of the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children, is a production of School of Humans and iHeartMedia. This episode was written by me, Josie Duffy Rice, and Taylor Von Lasley. Our script supervisor is Florence Burrow-Adams, and our producer is Gabby Watts. We had additional writing and production support from Sherry Scott. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Elsie Crowley, Brandon Barr, Matt Arnett, and me. Sound design and mix is by Jesse Neiswanger. Music is by Ben Soley. Additional recordings are courtesy of the Alabama Center for Traditional Culture. Special thanks to the Alabama Department of Archives and History, Michael Harriet, Floyd Hall, Kevin Nutt, Van Newkirk, and all of the survivors of Mount Meg's willing to share their stories. If you or someone you know attended Mount Megs and would like to be in contact, please email Mount Megs Podcast at gmail.com. That's M T M E I G S Podcast at gmail.com.
0: School of Humans.